Good morning. It's wonderful to be together. If you would open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, that's where we're going we're gonna to spend the bulk of our time this morning, and I'd like for you to have that text out in front of you. And while you're getting there, I, I want to throw a picture up of uh, the vehicle I drove in high school. There she is in all her radiant beauty. Uh, this isn't an actual picture of the... I couldn't find a picture of my actual Volkswagen Vanagon. But my senior year in high school, I had a 1982. And it wasn't just a Volkswagen. This was the Westphalia model that had the, like, pop-top and, uh, and, and, like, refrigerator, sink, stove. You could spin the, spin the chairs around and have, like, a, a team meeting there in the, in the van. I mean, it was a, it was a really cool little get up and it wasn't always in the best mechanical uh, condition uh, it had its issues here and there um, one of them was that the fuel gauge didn't work well but you know I, I really loved the van and I had a had a had a good time seeing people's looks as I pulled up driving this van you know it's a uh, it's trouble when a kid drives up in a Westphalia camper van <clears throat> you just instantly lower your expectations of them and so that's kind of where I was. Now, at the time, I, I worked for Jack Smith at the Gymnastic Sports Center, and uh, I was responsible for buying my own fuel, and that was a good lesson in economics for me because I found out pretty quickly that at 12 miles a gallon and working two-hour shifts that I spent just about as much money getting the van there uh, to work as I was paid while I was there. And so... Um, I learned a lot, but in short, it was a good lesson on, on purchasing things and upkeeping things, and, and one of the things that my parents did make me do was buy my own fuel, and so I worked really hard to be sure that I could take this beauty out to different places, and uh, there was one evening, however, when I, I made a mistake. I knew the fuel gauge didn't work well. Um, I knew it wasn't exactly accurate all the time, but I, I, missed, I messed up on my responsibility to, to pay attention to how far I had driven, and I got caught about halfway between Tuscola and Buffalo Gap, heading back from, I think, probably one-act play practice, because it was late at night, and it was dark, and the sputter of the engine started happening. Like, oh, man. I forgot to put gas in the Volkswagen van. Well, there was one house in the middle of nowhere that just happened to be close enough to where I ran out that I was kind of able to, to coast into their driveway. And I was there at the end of the driveway, left with this awful decision. I mean, this was before cell phones. My, well, there were cell phones, but my parents hadn't given me one yet. And so um, I didn't have a cell phone, so do I sit here and wait it out? let my parents worry about me, and then suffer their wrath when they finally find me? Or do I risk knocking on this random person's door in the middle of nowhere, them to look out and see some random hippie with a Volkswagen van trying to get in? I weighed that and decided my dad was scarier than uh, any, anyone on the other side of the door. So I knocked on the door, and they opened it. They, they took me to the barn. They got a gas can. They, they gave me enough gas to get home, and everything really worked out pretty well, all things considered. In fact, when I was working for Thornton's for a while trimming trees, we actually trimmed trees at this house, and the person was the same person who lived there when I was in high school. And I said, do you remember one night when some really desperate high school guy ran out of gas? And she said, no, I don't remember that. So I thought, well, that's, that's good. I didn't, I didn't uh, scar anyone too much. You know, I look at that story, and I think back. I had, I had this individual responsibility to keep fuel in the vehicle. I mean, that's what my parents had told me. That was the expectation, and I really just made a mistake. 
And I, I put myself in the other person's shoes, and I kind of asked this question, what responsibility did they have to me? I mean, really, what, what would we as a culture and as a society expect from a person in that position? Um, I mean, it gets a little gray, but we do all feel like there's a certain amount of responsibility that you owe to someone to help them out when they're down. I mean, just because someone doesn't make a mistake doesn't mean you kick them to the curb. And especially now, you've got this, this uh, obviously not so intelligent high school kid that's made a mistake. So what is your responsibility to them? You know, we've all been in situations where we needed help. Sometimes it's for our own because of our own poor decisions, sometimes it's because we just maybe didn't pay attention. Sometimes we simply got caught with bad luck. There's a lot of different reasons we've ended up in the different situations that you're in, but I would think if you looked back over the course of your life, you would all be able to identify times when you've been the helper and the helped. Times when you've been the smart one and times when you've been the not-so-smart one. Times when you've been the one that kind of had it together and times when you've been the one who was broken. Times when you have hurt and times when you've been the one doing the hurting. You know, we're familiar with the give and take, the ebb and flow of living as part of a community. We understand the, the cycling of the, the ducks in the sky and we see the V pattern and the one in the front move to the back and we understand that we each have our different times when we're pulling harder and pulling a heavier load and there's times when we need to rely on the, the power of others and that's a familiar and expected and normal thing and while it's sometimes difficult, the reality is this, we understand that as humans we are made to cooperate with one another. That's one of the things that has made humanity reach the heights that it's reached is our ability to cooperate with one another and as you look throughout cultures across time you see that this has always been an expectation of other people that we live in community that we cooperate that we share that we pull in the same direction and help those who are weak we are better together and we know it and we cannot escape it for some reason we're still uh um a little bit enchanted by stories of people who have tried. I've always been fascinated with this man. His name is Dick Pronicky. He uh, left society at the age of 51, and he built this cabin that you see out in the middle of the Alaskan wilderness, and he lived there for the next 30 years, I mean, literally into his 80s, alone in this cabin that he built with hand tools. He was flown in, dropped off with some metal axe heads. He whittled handles for it and built this cabin. The cabin now belongs to the uh, Parks and Wildlife Service, and, and you can actually go visit it. It's a, it's a historical marker now. It's been preserved. And it's a fascinating story. He took video footage and wrote extensively in journals. They developed it into a book. You can even watch a documentary about this man who lived alone in the wilderness. And, and I've been fascinated by it. For, there's, there's just something sometimes that makes you want to get away, right? Makes you want to get away from everyone. And so you look at this story of people who did, but as you look closer and you look closer, you realize he wasn't nearly as alone as it seemed. I mean, he was alone, much more alone than any of us would be okay with. He spent, he spent numerous days without any sort of human contact, but he had a dependence on others nevertheless. There was a man who would fly in supplies multiple times a year on a float plane that would bring him fuel and basic staples for living and ammunition and often clothing to help him through the winter. 
He would also deliver letters, and he would pick up letters that Dick had written. He brought him film for his camera. There was definitely a lifeline through this float plane, and not to mention the connection that he had with society because of the technology that he used, be it as simple as an axe head or a stove in his home. It seems that he was making an attempt at solitary living, but the bottom line is this. We simply aren't able to unplug and disconnect from one another. Scripture teaches that the fundamental reason we are drawn to community is that we were made that way by God. I mean, from the very beginning, even when it was just Adam and Eve, God's very first charge to them was be fruitful and multiply, like go make a people. And as we look at the scripture, we see that it is really unfolds the story of how God took people and, and formed them into communities and, and taught them how they were supposed to live together. And that so much of the effort of scripture is put into painting this picture of what it means to live as a community of God's people. So the Old Testament walks us through the emergence of, of God's people from tribes to this family to this nation with this special and unique identity. And then we get to the New Testament and we hear this phrase, the kingdom of God, and we learn about God's family and the, and the final picture of what this family is designed to look like. Now, I believe we can look out at human nature, just culture as a whole, and we see this general principle of community at play. But if we look at God's people, we see a special type of community with special types of interactions there are things that mark us as unique and, and different than the world around us. And there's things that we do as God's people in this community that are unnatural and go against the grain of maybe what we see elsewhere in society. And today we're going to unpack a, a small element of this in Galatians chapter 6. I want to read again with you verses 1 through 5. Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So what do we see here in these five verses? I mean, the, the first glaring thing that I see is a sort of tension. I mean, it's almost like there in verse 3, Paul kind of pivots and shifts gears, and he goes from telling you to be burden bearers to telling you to bear your own, lo your own load. And, and we're going to look at that a little bit. But, I mean, bigger picture-wise, I see that he's speaking to us as God's community. He begins with the phrase, brothers. And he's telling us to live out the law of Christ. And that's a really, really important thing. I mean, something that our minds should zero in on when he uses that phrase. And it seems that this law of Christ, this, this law of Christ that we're encouraged to live out, seems to be done so in this corporate community setting, this amongst the relationships that we have together. And what he's calling us to here is something really special. You see here in Galatians 6, we see that those who are caught are restored, and those who are free are careful, and in doing so, burdens are shouldered. I've got four main questions that I hope that we can answer this morning. Um, these mainly center around the first two verses, and then we're going to look at the last three towards the end. The first is this, who, who and what is doing the, the catching? 
What does that mean in verse 1 where it talks about catching? And what does restoration with a spirit of gentleness look like? And what type of burdens exactly is he talking about in this text? And what does it look like to, to bear those burdens? I mean, we read through that and all of those words make sense to us, but, but what does he mean? Those questions show up before we get to the, the hinge point in verse 3 and he seems to almost shift gears and we have this tension of, of bearing others' burdens and, and bearing our own, of, of standing on our own accomplishments or leaning on the collective stability of others. So I think that it's really important that we develop the habit of thinking critically and asking questions of the text because this leads you to see things that you haven't seen and think thoughts that you haven't thought and be challenged in ways that you would never dream. But, but it can be hard work, so so we're going to dig in, and the first thing we're going to look at is that first little phrase, if anyone is caught in any transgression. Now, right now, if you were to go in our backyard, you would see that in the mesquite tree back by the playset is a live trap that Braxton has set up in attempts to catch a squirrel. And it's been up there for quite a while, and I, I wanted to take a picture of it. Instead, instead, the pictures just really weren't turning out. It's kind of at an awkward angle. It's hard to tell what it is. So I've put a, just a stock photo of a trap so you can have something to latch on to. But really what I'm picturing in my head is this live trap that Braxton has set in the tree. It's way too big for a squirrel, and he baited it with mesquite beans, and I think that's maybe why we haven't been too successful. But we've been checking the trap every day to see if that squirrel got caught. You know, in our lives, the bait is often much more tempting. And the trap doesn't look like a trap at all. Maybe that's because we don't notice it, because we aren't looking. And it seems so easy at times to get nabbed and to get caught. Now, there's a couple different ways to read this verse. The first way of reading this verse is to think of it like this. As if we are brothers looking for an opportunity or aware of an opportunity to catch others in a secret sin so that we can expose and restore them. Maybe even if we aren't actively hunting them down to catch sin, um, it, it still you can read it in a way that when the sin is brought to light, they have been exposed, and we are the ones that do the catching. This would be like a, a child caught with his hand in the cookie jar. You know, it can be a real blessing, actually to catch your child doing something like that. During my days in youth ministry, often parents would come to me exasperated at some sort of sin that they had uncovered in the life of their children. I mean, it just kind of seemed like everything had come to a head, and I would tell them, this may be painful now, but it's a blessing. It's a blessing to get to see these things now when you have a chance to correct it. It can be a real blessing to, to see someone in sin and be able to help them correct and grow. And while that may be the case, I'm not convinced that's the best way to read this passage. Some translations, uh, some of the translations you're using make it, make it come across that way, and it's probably not totally inaccurate. But there's a, another way of looking at and reading this verse, and that's seeing the transgressions themselves as the trap. When we as brothers notice a person who has been snared, not by us, but by the transgressions, then we stop what we are doing and help. So this would be like running up on a child who was trying to get his hand in the cookie jar and somehow the, the cabinet door shut and now they're stuck 
and they're caught and they're trapped. And that's a little different type of interaction. And while this isn't a, a hill that I want to die on, there's certainly validity in both of, those, uh, both of those interpretations. In the context of what the larger context of this verse, I think the second one is more accurate. It makes me lean this way because we see the admonition to restore the brother. That carries with it the idea of rescuing We see the admonition to guard oneself against the very same temptation, meaning that you're also at a risk of being caught by this thing. So as the verse opens, we we start developing this picture and seeing this idea of a person, a person who's been caught in, in a transgression, um, I, I develop. I have this idea of someone who is, is stuck in a in a pattern of sin that it is it has pulled them in and it's taken a hold of them and it won't let them go and they're no longer in a position to 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 help themselves out. And the text says, "You who are spiritual, you have a responsibility to restore them with gentleness." In my view, the transgression is the thing that has done the trapping. And transgression is a little bit of a loaded term. I like the phrase transgression. I think in our minds we often just kind of exchange it with the term sin. Some of your translations use the word sin there. Others may use the word trespass. They all fit. They're all appropriate ways of of, uh, translating this particular word. But I, I like transgression because of what it implies. You see, sin always ends with people being treated badly i think sometimes we hear the word sin and we view it as a concept and it's a bad thing that we do but we don't always view it for the through the lens of its result and the and the bottom line is this sin represents things that are painful and harmful and hurtful and when we use the word transgression or trespass that draws that nuance out and it helps us realize oh this isn't something that other people just deal with this is something that happens to other people and also affects me this is a violation in a sense of what we've come to expect of one another as a society as a people if we unwrap this term in the verse here a little bit maybe uh, share it a little different, we could read it like this. Brothers, if anyone is found hurting you or hurting someone you love, if anyone is stuck in a pattern of damaging behavior towards people, those of you who are spiritual, those of you who look at life through a different lens, those of you who see reality different, Instead of crushing them for the betterment of society, instead of acting in self-preservation, instead of cutting them out so that everything will be okay, as God's people, we step in and we seek to restore them. Now that's a pretty difficult thing to do. I want to look at a similar situation spoken of in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5-11. through 11. Listen closely to what he writes here. Paul says, Now if anyone has caused pain he has caused it not to me but in some measure not to put it too severely to to all of you for such a one this punishment by the majority is enough so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow so i beg you to reaffirm your love for him for this is why i wrote 
that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. In other words, Paul says that people hurt people, and they cause pain, and often when they do it, we all feel it. We feel pain individually, but we also feel it as a community. And often we are inclined to use our community as a form of punishment. And we isolate those who have transgressed against us and have caused us pain. And we place this pressure on them and they're overwhelmed with with sorrow because of the collective pressure from the community. And Paul here says, don't do that. We don't use this community. That's not what it's designed for, to to overwhelm someone with sorrow. I'm telling you, now is the time to forgive, to comfort. Reaffirm your love for this person is what Paul calls them to. He says, "Don't, don't be outwitted by Satan. In other words, the natural ways of doing things often feel so right, but really, really what happens when we go down that pathway is we end up becoming snared ourselves. It can be easy when we're hurt by someone to hurt them back. And then we become snared as well. And we become snared in this cycle of transgressions where they wrong us, so we wrong them, so they wrong us, so we wrong them. And quickly it spirals out of control. And all throughout Scripture we're seeing that we are called to be cycle breakers and it's not fair and it doesn't feel just and it doesn't feel right. But over and over the text says, you're the one that it's going to stop with because you're burden bearers. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Is the very next phrase that comes out. You see, as we're thinking about it this way, it changes the way we read this admonition, this statement. I mean, how do you, after all, bear a burden for someone? We're not talking about picking up a heavy weight for them and carrying it across the room. We know that's not what the text means. The text means something deeper than that. The text is talking about things that are immaterial. So how do you as a person shoulder the weight of something immaterial that someone else is dealing with? And I think that this gives us a way to think about it. I mean, the context is a transgression. The context is being wronged. And so the burden we bear as a community is the pain of sin that is often laid upon our shoulders when someone does us wrong. And the text is telling us while the normal thing to do is to cast that pain aside quickly and along with it the person who is causing it, the Christ-like thing to do is to shoulder it up and take it on as our own and bear it and love those people through it. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26 reads, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You see, this here is not just a list of, central at, uh, of simple attributes, but a list of attributes that we are to have towards people who are ensnared by sin. And among this list, he says, patiently enduring evil, correcting with gentleness, and hoping that God will grant repentance. 
In other words, you're going to have to endure some pain from the people that you're trying to work with. That's how it's going to go. Galatians 6.2 is telling you this. When others around you sin, it's going to hurt. But you don't let that pain grab you and pull you in and make you part of the problem. As God's community, you're called to be like Christ and take on the pain and be willing to bear the burden of transgression that someone else places on you because you are spiritual and you see things differently. I'm drawn to Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what we're called to do, to do nothing for ourselves and everything for others. And that's the pattern of Christ. That's the law of Christ that's being spoken of in this text. The umbrella under which everything fits. And you, you were put here to do this. And you bring glory to God when you act this way. The text begins with brothers. It's like he gathers you up and says, okay now, come here, listen. You're like, you're God's people all right, fellow Christians, all right, all right, Oldham Lane family, here's what this is going to look like. Here's how we're going to act. Here's how we're going to be different. You have the same relational urges as everyone, but we live it out different. We're a people in the business of restoration, a people in the business of reaffirming love, a people of gentleness and respect and kindness, a people who are willing to shoulder the burden of someone else's problems, and we're willing to hurt under that load so that just like Christ rescues us, we can be a part of the rest team for them now as Paul's wrapping up this passage he draws attention to you as an individual because you see there is definitely some tension here we all know that this can't give us permission to act however we want in any situation this isn't an invitation for us to collapse into community where everyone just does what they want and they expect the masses to pick up the slack i mean that doesn't work we know that it doesn't work and so in verse three paul tells you don't deceive yourselves by putting on putting yourself on some sort of a pedestal don't think that you are something when you are nothing for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And then he goes on to say, But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. You need to rightly discern when you are carrying a load and when your neighbor is carrying it for you. Because you do have a, a load to bear, a load that you should bear. You do need to pay attention. You do need to work hard. You do need to test your work and be sure you are doing your part. But, but this daily load that you are meant to bear is very different from the load that's placed on others because of our struggle with sin. In fact, the word is different in the Greek. Um, in the New American Commentary, it says this, the word translated burdens in verse 2 refers, if we have seen, to a heavy load, an oppressive weight which one is expected to carry for a long distance. But the word for load in verse 5 is used elsewhere to refer to a ship's cargo or a soldier's knapsack or a pilgrim's backpack. 
So there's certainly a difference between the two things that we're talking about. It's as if we are all on a, a backpacking trip and, and, and we've packed our bags and we each have our provisions that we're responsible with and, and we're going down the trail, but ahead of us, someone steps on a, on a fallen tree and the tree shifts and, and maybe it was silly of them to step on the tree. Maybe it was irresponsible. Maybe they weren't paying attention, but there we find them trapped. And so what do we do as a community? Well, as a community, we, we set our packs down and we come around them and we lift the tree off of them and we pick them up and we divide up the contents of their pack and we put it in ours and we carry it until they're ready to carry their pack again. When they are restored and healthy, they start pulling their weight. Church, we can't do this alone. We have an individual responsibility to carry our cargo. That's what we were designed for. But as a community, we have a larger responsibility to cover the the heavy, oppressive, individually unbearable load of sin that is certainly among us. For that, we weren't designed. That traps us, that oppresses us, that holds us hostage. And part of God's solution for escaping that trap is living in community. That's who we are. Living in community means enduring together. And it's painful at times. And it isn't something that is easy. And it requires putting others' needs above our own. And it means accepting someone who has broken and who has hurt you. And accepting someone who has violated moral standards that seem to make this world work. And it can get messy and difficult. But when we as a community live in a way that promotes the law of Christ among our members. Then we cast aside the spirit of harshness. And we cast aside the spirit of self-preservation. And we cast aside our desire for justice. And we circle around the broken of this world. And we say, hey, I can carry that. And someone from over here says, hey, I'll, I'll take a piece of that. And then, and then from the back, well, give me a little bit. I have some room in my pack. Well, over here, let me have some. And before you know it, we're fighting over the burdens. And together, we've picked up this person. And we've made it so they can walk again and so that they can heal. We've overlooked the pain that was caused and says, I, I can shoulder some of that. As a community, that's what we do. And in doing so, we take the broken of this world and we press them towards Christ, shouldering the load that no one could carry on their own. We bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We don't give up. We endure together. So we've looked at a lot of different things over the last few weeks. Being together, sharing together, learning together, growing together, and now enduring together. Oh, there's value in togetherness. And I'm thankful for this community God has provided. Perhaps you are feeling weighed down this morning, feeling outcast and and trapped and caught, and and that's okay. Um, This morning, this is us pulling up alongside of you and offering to take some of your load. You know, we're tough, and, and, and it's okay if it hurts a little bit, and we're a people that are fine with that. We can take a little mud smeared on our face. We don't mind, because you know what? Christ did the exact same thing for each and every one of us, and he's willing to do it for you. And we as a community, we honor this gift that he gave us by enduring and bearing with the transgressions of others, helping pull them in. This, this is a place of restoration, a place of forgiveness, a place where the law of Christ reigns and not the law of mankind. So we stand prepared to study for you, with you if you're questioning. 
to baptize you if you believe and to join arms with you if you seek restoration. Whatever your need might be, come forward as we stand and sing.